This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Right, friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. As always, a beautiful Monday morning here in Southern California. Uh, great to have you with us. It is April 24th, 2023. So we are in a series called Transcending Eschatology, which is really the study of end time events. Uh, this is a series, like I said, I had no idea that I was going to do. I never looked into my future and said, yeah, someday I am going to be doing a episode or a podcast that's going to talk about the end times. Now, I was fascinated with it back in the day, um, and I, I would have talked for hours if someone was willing to talk about it, but there was something very personal about my beliefs and my thoughts on the end of time, something that I just needed to know for myself. So it was mainly internal, um, and I think I think I may have looked toward the future and thought, I wonder if someday I'll ever be asked to share my faith or to share my beliefs about this stuff. And I think I always kind of knew, well, that's why you're studying it, right? That's why you're trying to come to some conclusions about some of these things so that someday, who knows, maybe you could be used in that way. But I never foresaw it happening like this. And yet here we are. So like I said, we're in a series called Transcending Eschatology. This is week three. Week one, we talked about the doomsday clock, which was really discussion around the social, um, cultural beliefs about the end of time, right? You don't have to have any religious background or spiritual beliefs. It's just, you know, people in the world have beliefs about the end of time, uh, typically based on science. A lot of them come from watching movies or reading books, right? What other people have said about the world ending. Then in episode two, the flip side, uh, we switched over to the other side and we talked about the end of times as it relates to spirituality or religious belief systems. Uh, And we looked at some of the major world religions and what some of them may believe about the end of time. And today, uh, in episode three, we moved to Christianity So the faith tradition that I grew up in, and we really start the process of defining what end time beliefs are within this religious tradition. So today's topic, Transcending Eschatology, Part 3, Carrying the Torch. Chapter 1, The Olympic Connection. Chapter 2, Levels of Complexity. And Chapter 3, What's the Value Proposition? Chapter 1. The Olympic Connection. The Olympics have always fascinated me. I mean, I can still remember as a small child watching them with my parents. Mainly the Winter Olympics, right? My parents were from Canada, so sports like hockey, skiing, curling, figure skating, all of that stuff hit pretty close to home. But I never stopped. I watched them throughout my life as a kid, in high school, through college. Uh, Even today, my wife and I, who our cord cutters or cable cutters most of the year have figured out what level of cable we need to pay for in order to watch the Olympics each year when they arrive. 
or every two years, I guess I should say. Um, Tammy grew up more interested in the Summer Olympics, so together we watched them all. Every two years now, we get to enjoy the spectacle that is the Summer Games or the Winter Games. But it's not the games that I want to talk about today. It's a tradition that takes place leading up to the games, and it's called the Olympic Torch Relay. The tradition started back in 1936, and the idea was to take a flame from the birthplace of the Olympics, which is Olympia, Greece, and basically carry that flame all the way to the site of the Olympics for that year. And while there may have been some variations along the way, uh, some hiccups, things like that, this tradition is still held to this day, leading up to every Olympic Games. Each time the Games come around, new torches are designed, and these torches are carried and passed from one person to another, eventually entering the main venue the night of opening ceremonies. The flame is then carried around a track or something within the venue uh, from person to person, and at the right time, that flame is used to light the cauldron, the cauldron that will remain lit throughout the games for the next two weeks. On the surface, it's just a fun little thing that we associate with the Olympic Games, right? And we only really get to see the last handoffs that occur during the opening ceremonies. What we don't see is how it started, right, in Olympia, and the hundreds upon thousands of people who got to carry and pass the torch in order for it to reach the opening ceremonies. All the planning, the team that oversees the relay, the countries that would have to sign off on it, the crowds that gather to watch it go through their hometown, the logistics of getting it over large mountain passes or over large bodies of water, and the fact that the torches either have to be swapped out or refueled along the way to keep the flame going. Whatever the case, it's a really big deal. And that's how I want to start our conversation about Christianity and ultimately Christian eschatology as a flame that has been passed down since the beginning of time. Now I understand the idea of the beginning of time means different things to different people, the same way that the Bible is viewed differently by different people. Within Christianity, there are people who grew up viewing the world um, as if God created it four to 6,000 years ago. And there are Christians who believe that the world has been around for millions of years, based on scientific research and dating methods, things like that. And there's probably a wide spectrum of belief in between there as well. But for many, their belief about the age of the earth is based on the way they view the Bible. And that's a kind of a sticking point for me. In fact, the episode I just did before starting this series is called Transcending Inerrancy, where we took a good look at the Bible and how it is viewed these days. And I was pretty transparent about the fact that I'm really not sure where I even stand right now. I was raised to believe that the Bible is inerrant. Not a single thing wrong with it, not a single contradiction. But I can't say that I adhere to that position any longer. On the other side of the coin, there are Christians who view the Bible as nothing more than a collection of short stories, right? Meant to be uplifting and inspiring on some level, very artistic, but little else. And I don't really fit into that camp either. So where does that leave me? Somewhere in the middle, I guess. Viewing the Bible as very important and full of factual information, but not without its problems and contradictions. 
And that's a pretty tough place uh, to be when you grew up in a very black and white world of traditional Christianity. But that's the foundation that I'm going to set for this entire series that we do on the end of times. I'm going to stick with the belief that God created the earth somewhere between four and 6,000 years ago. And I'm going to use the Bible as our guide, but with the understanding that it was written by flawed human beings, translated by flawed human beings, canonized by flawed human beings, and is often interpreted by flawed human beings. That said, let's return to our illustration of a torch being passed down since the dawn of time. It's my belief that God wants us to understand the truth. He wants us to read, learn, and interpret the breadcrumbs that he left for us, the things that have been passed down over time. But there will always be some things that we can't know for sure, right? This ambiguity is what provides the following two things. First, a need for faith. Faith is that little thing that you have to have when there's ambiguity, when you don't have all the facts when you know you just have to believe in order to keep moving forward. Now, this is faith in God as a Christian and faith in some of the things that the Bible teaches. But it's been shown that even scientists have to have faith in the things that they can't fully prove to be true, like the Big Bang Theory and the missing link. Scientists may hate to admit this, but they have to have faith as well when they can't fully prove things in order to believe in the theories that they hold to be foundational. And second, freedom of choice. Without a little ambiguity, our freedom of choice would not feel very important. In other words, if God appeared on the world stage and said, I exist, and if you don't follow me, you will die in three days' time, how much faith do you really think you would need? And would you feel like you have the freedom to choose against him? I mean, sure. We could, right? We could, we could still choose death over life. But when the difference between your options is that lopsided, it starts to feel like you really don't have a choice. Next, when we talk about God passing the truth down through the generations, it's very similar to the way a parent passes down truth to their kids. So let's say you want to teach a kid how to drive a car. Uh, at age three, you might start by purchasing a matchbox car, right? And having them play with it around the house. At age five, you might start having conversations about the actual car and how the steering wheel works and how the accelerator works. At age eight, you might talk about gas, the engine, uh, acceleration, braking, you know, a little bit more detail. At age 12, you might actually let your kids sit on your lap and steer the car once in a while. At age 15, they get a crash course in how the car works, and they learn the rules of the road. And then around 16, they get to drive your car, with you in the passenger seat watching their every move. And at some point, they get their license, and they're able to drive on their own. See how that works? We teach our kids how to do things with varying levels of knowledge and complexity based on the age that they're at. We don't let them drive the car at age 3, but we might teach them what a car is at age three. And so it is with God. I believe that he is teaching us about truth a little bit at a time, based on our age, based on our position in the global timeline. So let's look at it that way. Let's look how the torch was passed down since the beginning of time, starting with Adam and Eve. So the Bible account 
suggests that Adam and Eve were the only two people who got to experience life as it was truly meant to be, right? Living in the Garden of Eden with perpetual motion, as I call it. We all know what this is, right? Uh, Perpetual motion is a machine that can continue to work or run forever. And this is how it was in the beginning. Plants, animals, and yes, human beings were created to live forever, according to the Bible. But God gave Adam and Eve the freedom of choice, which was great, except that at some point they took that freedom of choice and they chose the other side. That ended the perpetual motion we talked about and ushered in two things, sin and death. Now, people are born and they eventually die, a beginning and an end. And when this happened, God had to explain some things to Adam and Eve. We don't have the full account of the things that he told them, but we do know that he started the process, telling them what sin would do to them and putting a plan in place to show them that if they still believed in their creator, that good things could happen. God instituted a system whereby Adam and Eve would kill and sacrifice a pure lamb. And this death or this this killing of an innocent lamb and the shedding of its blood would be an ongoing practice to show them what was coming. Now, my assumption is that God told them things about death, about dying, and that there was a plan for them to be reunited someday, as long as they took part in this system that he put in place. Next, we have the early patriarchs. So think Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, Abraham, big, big, big names from the early, early days of the Bible. These men and women um, and the people living in those generations continued on in that tradition, right? They, They took what Adam and Eve had told them, and they continued to sacrifice animals as a way to stay right with God and as a sign of what was to come. And we know that God interacted with them, but we don't necessarily know how. According to the Bible, we know that Enoch walked so closely with God that he was actually taken straight into heaven without seeing death. And we know that Abraham either talked to God or had some way of knowing his will because he made some pretty big life decisions based on the things that God asked him to do. Next, after the patriarchs, came the prophets. So the prophets were people who were God's spokespersons on earth. People like Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah. God made things known to them, and then they took those things and made it known to the people. Often doing three important things. First, reminding the people how God worked in the past. Calling out inappropriate things the people were doing in the present. And then casting vision for the future based on the choices the people would make. And the prophets worked to keep the people focused on their duties, right? On this sacrificial system that kept them right with God. Next, at some point, you had the Israelite nation. So the prophets spent their time working with God's people, God's chosen people, the Israelite nation. This is a whole nation that grew out of the line of Jacob and his 12 sons. Each son became a leader in one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was really the birth of the Jewish tradition, or Judaism, as we looked at the other day. The prophets worked to keep this large group of people together and doing the things that God asked them to do. 
from Moses helping them escape slavery in Egypt to Jeremiah and his warnings during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. The prophets kept pulling them back to God's law and the sacrificial system used to show that they were right with God. As a religious group, the Israelites did have prophecy. They had beliefs in the future events that would eventually benefit them. And the biggest futuristic belief was this belief in a thing called the Messiah, somebody who would come and save them from the governments of the world. The the Israelites had been a very persecuted people, right? They had come out of slavery in Egypt, and they, they knew what it was like to be held down by the powerful rulers of the world. So their belief in the Messiah was huge, because when the Messiah came, he would help them overcome their enemies and help them rule on earth. Now, during this time, there were also prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel who were writing things down about the future, content that eventually became books of the Bible, books that included a lot of information about the things that had not happened yet. Next, you have the life of Jesus. So, if you're a Jew... This is where you handed the torch off. This is where the story ends, because Jesus was not accepted as the Messiah in the Jewish world. But if you're a Christian, Jesus was the Messiah that the Bible foretold, that prophets talked about. Jesus is believed to be fully God and fully man, God's only son, who came to save his people by living a perfect life and dying on a cross. So the whole system that God put in place with Adam and Eve, the animal sacrifice thing, that had been an illustration that the people had repeated over and over and over again that helped them understand the concept of maintaining a right relationship with God and how it required death, the death of something perfect. And that sacrificial system, now that Jesus had come and given his life on the cross, that sacrificial system ended because animal sacrifices were never the real plan. They were just a reminder to the people what was required and an illustration of what Jesus would come to do someday. So Jesus lived his life and he added to the collective knowledge of the people. He helped explain new things and he told the people what was coming. The words in the Bible attributed to Jesus include conversations about the end of time. Because, yes, Jesus believed in prophecy. He believed in this idea that the world would come to an end someday. It was part of his teachings while he was on earth. After his death, he rose from the grave, he appeared to many people, and basically proved that his life meant that they would have the same ability to be resurrected someday, as long as they just believed in him. Next, the torch was handed off to the Bible. So the church has always had the oral traditions that were handed down. But along with that came sacred texts that had been written down. Even in Jesus' day, they went to the temple and they read from the sacred scrolls, right? Sacred books that had been passed down within their religious tradition. Books from Moses and the prophets and eventually books written by men who saw Jesus and spent time with him. And at some point, a lot of these sacred texts were assembled into one volume that we call the Bible. 
And regardless what you believe about the Bible and its importance, it's very interesting how it came to be and how powerful it is to so many people. Next, the Catholic Church picked up the torch. So the Christian church that emerged after the death and resurrection of Jesus eventually organized into one large church, the Catholic Church. Catholics believe that Jesus started their church, though it wasn't officially recognized as such until 313 AD when Constantine legalized the practice of Christianity. Not everyone who believed in Jesus became Catholic. There were many groups that remained true to their beliefs and hid from the Catholic Church in order to worship the way that they believed to be true. The Catholic Church was very demanding and very brutal during those years, going on crusades to force people to believe as they did. Then, in the 16th century, a major event happened. People in the church started to see that there were some inaccuracies in the church's teachings. Some very big ones, in fact. So they read researched, and determined that the church needed to get back to the Bible, back to the clear teachings of Jesus. This group simply wanted to make the church a better place, but they quickly realized that that wasn't going to happen. The church actually burned some of these men at the stake, and they used the threat of death to keep them from pushing these new ideas. But eventually the group grew large enough and split off from the church. This was called the Protestant Reformation, and it was the birth of many Protestant religions that we see in the world today. But before we leave Catholicism, we should probably touch on their view of eschatology. After all, that is our topic for this series. According to simplycatholic.com, Catholics believe in the following. So they believe that humans are made up of a physical body and a soul, which doesn't die. At death, The soul leaves the body and has basically three options, heaven, hell, or a place called purgatory. Now, purgatory is a temporary state, and based on the things that people do for you, you may be able to move from purgatory back into heaven. Uh, We have a lot of control over our destiny, if you will, um, and we can do the following things. We can attend mass, get baptized, confess to a priest, take the Eucharist, Right? These are all things that help forgive you of your sins. However, when you die, the living can still do things like pray, fast, serve, give to the church, etc. And in doing these things, you can actually help your loved one move from purgatory into heaven. And finally, um, Catholicism does not believe that heaven is the end. So heaven is viewed as a temporary state of existence that will go on until Jesus returns. And when that happens, then we will all return to earth in physical bodies and live with God forever. In terms of the end time, here are four things that Catholics believe will happen. First, the gospel must be preached to the entire world. Second, the Jews will recognize that Jesus is the true Messiah. Third, the Antichrist will appear and try to lead many people away from the church. And number four, there will be a final Passover and day of judgment. Now, I'm sure that's just a very high overview uh, of, of what the Catholic Church believes about the end of time, but that's all we really have time for today. Which brings us to our final category, which is Protestant Christianity. 
So this is the religious tradition that I grew up in. And denominations that grew out of the Protestant Reformation are known as Protestant churches, right? Protestant Christianity. And within these denominations, I'm sure there are many commonly held beliefs, most of which led them to split away from the Catholic Church. But there are also thousands of variations on the theme. Each denomination believes a slightly different thing about one small element of the faith. So they broke away, and they became their own denomination. My parents used to tell me, why do you think there are so many denominations? Their answer? It's all part of Satan's master plan, basically hiding a needle in a haystack. If he can create division in the church and create thousands of different versions of the truth, then people will probably be really confused, and they'll probably just throw it out altogether. After all, how can they all say they have the truth? It's not possible. Now, I'm not going to break down Protestant Christian eschatology in this episode, because it's going to take at least a full episode to do. Uh, However, now that we've worked our way down to Christian eschatology, that's where we're going to stay for the rest of the series. Chapter 2, Levels of Complexity. So I'm sure you're saying, why did we just take that long walk down memory lane from Adam and Eve to Protestant Christianity? Well, because I wanted you to see the Olympic torch relay, how God handed Adam and Eve the first torch, how they passed it down through the patriarchs, how the prophets held it tightly as they corralled God's people, how the Israelites carried it as God's chosen people, how Jesus came to carry it for a few years, how the Bible carries the torch for millions around the world, how the Catholic Church picked it up for a while, and then how the Reformers carried the torch out of Catholicism into the new Protestant world. And that's really how the torch came to us today. Very similar to us teaching our kids how to drive, right? God gave Adam and Eve the truth that they could handle at the time. And with each passing of the torch, new information was given. Over time, people began to understand new things and be exposed to new, more progressive ideas. Bible content that seems so out of reach for a while is now being studied and interpreted. Almost the way that the levels are unlocked in a video game. It's as if we need to have enough experience points in order to unlock the next level. Because without the experience and the knowledge, the information just wouldn't make sense. So here we are, living in a time where there is no lack of knowledge. Knowledge flows freely over the internet, through social media, and in never-ending short video clips on TikTok. And while there is a lot of fake news and misinformation, there are also thousands upon millions of truth bombs out there for us to find people carrying the torch and passing along the information that they have as we get closer and closer to the end of time. So like I said, next week we'll dive in and really break down the various beliefs about eschatology within the Christian church. But for today, let's start high level and discuss two very important levels of information that we have about the end of time. So level one is what I would call oral tradition and plain language. So this is really the high-level stuff, stuff that we as Christians have been taught since we were kids. I would say that most Christians can tell you the answers to the big three questions, right? Where did we come from? 
Well, God created us. Why are we here? Well, to love God, love those around us, and enjoy a long life on earth. And where do we go when we die? Well, we have two options. We can go to heaven with God, or we can choose not to and cease to exist. See what I mean? That's pretty high level. An oral tradition that has been passed down for centuries. These are the answers that a parent can give their kid when they tuck them into bed at night. And when we start to get into questions about the end of time, the Bible provides numerous plain language explanations about the end of time. Not stories to decode, not fantastical fairy tales that we have to try to interpret, just plain old language explaining that the end is coming. So what I want to do is I want to read through some examples from the Bible of just plain language explanations about the end of time and about death and things like that. Um, but here's the kicker. I'm going to read them from the, the King James Version of the Bible. So this is, <laughs> this is what a lot of Christians believe is the original uh, translation of the Bible, so the most accurate, even though it sounds very old school, old language. Um, but I'm going to read it this way just so you get a feel for what the original readers of the Bible probably heard about the end of time. So here we go. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which are asleep in Jesus God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Next, we have Matthew 24, 40 to 41. Then shall two be in the field, and one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other will be left. Second Timothy 3, 1 to 5. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their, their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Matthew 24, 6, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that ye not be troubled. For all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Mark thirteen thirty two, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but only the Father. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two to 54 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Joel 2.28-32 And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. And finally, Matthew twenty four twenty one, For then shall be great tribulation, such as not was since the beginning of this world to this time. No, nor shall ever be. So there you go. I know that was hard to hard to listen to because we don't speak that way, right? The King James Version was using very old English. Um, but those are just a few of the verses that talk about the end of time in plain language, right? There aren't symbols, there aren't beasts, there aren't dragons. It's just plain old language suggesting that the world is going to come to an end, suggesting what the world's going to be like at the end of time, suggesting the order of when things are going to happen, right? Um, So all of that is plain language prophecy, if you will, about the end of time. And some really cool things about these statements is the way that they all fit together, right? These statements were written by different people at different times, and yet they're all talking about the same thing and adding clarity to the same thing. What it shows is that there was a common belief that people held about the end of time. Not that they were all 100% sure how it would happen, but they all knew that it was coming, right? And these are just a few of the verses about the end of time. The Bible is full of plain language verses that tell the story. What kind of story? Well, that life exists in a less than ideal state, that it will get worse and eventually come to an end, that God will come back at that time to set things straight, and that those who believe in him will live forever, and those who choose not to believe in him will cease to exist. I mean, that's the kind of the plain language story about the end of time. Level two is prophecy. Now, this is where most um, eschatology enthusiasts live, right? Because the plain language stuff is good, but prophecy is better. Why? Because it's exhilarating. It's like the wild, wild west, like the gold rush in the 1940s. There's gold in them thar hills, right? People moved out west to make their millions because they heard that there was gold to be found. Only they had to find it. And so it is with Bible prophecy. There is gold hidden in parts of the Bible that are very hard to read, much less understand. The truth is there somewhere, but how do you know whether you're right or not? Because there are all sorts of smart people out there reading the same books in the same Bible, 
and their explanations are totally different than yours. And so it goes, right? This is the world that I spent time in back in my 20s. I was raised with one very specific interpretation. I dated a girl who had a whole different interpretation. And then I continued to meet other people with third, fourth, and fifth interpretations of prophecy. So at this point, I really started to question it all, right? I mean, I was shaken because my very black and white belief system had been punctured a hundred times by other people who had other beliefs about prophecy. And I wanted it to all be the same, right? I wanted us all to be believing in the same thing because it had to be black and white. It had to be true. But I quickly learned it was not. So let's start by defining what prophecy is. Prophecy almost exclusively refers to things that will happen in the future. It's where we get the word prophet from. In the Bible, there was a very simple process, right? God gave important information to the prophets, and then the prophets shared that information with the people to help them understand it. And this was the reason, or the goal, to warn people about the consequences of their behavior, to inspire change in people, to expose common pitfalls in the human condition, to help us understand the future, and to provide hope versus fear. Like I said, prophecy isn't for the faint of heart. It's literally jumping into the deep end of the pool. It's a playground for wild speculation and fantastical ideas, interpretation of crazy things that most people don't even want to talk about. But I believe that it's there for a reason, and I believe that we can all take something from it, even if we don't feel like we understand every little detail. Chapter 3. What's the Value Proposition? Like I just said, I think that there's something important that we can all take from Bible prophecy. But what and why? What's the value proposition here? What am I going to get for the time that I have put in? We've discussed that there are people who just want nothing to do with Bible prophecy. Some because it's scary, some because they know it'll be difficult, others because they're just flat out busy and they don't have the time, and still others because they don't believe that we're meant to understand it in the first place. But what if it is important? What if God inspired people to write these things down for a reason? What then? The Bible includes verses that suggest it's important to be ready. Uh, to understand what we believe, to be able to share our beliefs with others, uh, to be aware of the times that we're living in, that we won't know the exact day Jesus will return, but we should at least understand the season. And there's a great parable in the Bible Jesus told to help explain this. It's called the Parable of the Ten Bridesmaids. In Matthew 25, 1-13, the story goes something like this. Ten bridesmaids were waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, but he was delayed, late into the night. Five of the women had planned ahead. They packed extra oil for their lamps, and they were ready to go. The other five did not. When the bridegroom arrived, the five who had the extra oil in their lamps were ready to meet him and attended the party. The other five had gone off to find more oil, and they missed out on the party. Now, there are numerous conclusions we can draw from this parallel, but I think that the one about being ready is the most important. The parable is found in Matthew chapter 25, but in chapter 24, Jesus spends the entire chapter talking about the future and about the end of time. 
So isn't it interesting that the next chapter begins with a parable, helping them understand not only what he just said better, but helping them understand the importance of being ready, the importance of being prepared. The suggestion is that as we get closer and closer to the end, it will probably feel like God is late, like he's been delayed. But during that time, we need to prepare. We need to be ready. In the parable, it was bringing enough oil for the lamps. But for us, it might mean focusing on our spiritual life a bit more than our career. It might mean setting time apart each day and each week to remain connected to our creator. And it might mean dusting off the Bible and prophecy every now and then and taking another stab at understanding what God is trying to say. Let's land the plane. So thank you so much for sticking with me this week. I love that you're here and willing to think through some of this stuff with me. It's not easy stuff, and I know it can be frustrating, uh, but I think that we're going to look back and be thankful that we did this together. So this week, ask yourself the following questions. First, what are your thoughts about the torch concept, right? This idea that a torch of truth has been passed down from person to person, group to group throughout time, and that it has been handed to us at this point in time. Second, where are you at with the whole complexity thing when it comes to end time events? Are you still in the oral tradition or plain language phase? If so, not a problem. The Bible verses um, that are in plain language still teach us a lot about the end of time. Just reading these normal parts of the Bible provide a lot of knowledge about our future. Or if you're into prophecy, where are you at? How are you doing? Are you loving it or are you feeling completely overwhelmed? And finally, do you believe in the value proposition? Do you believe that diving into Bible prophecy is important, that there will be a return on your investment? The fact that you're here suggests that you do, and I love that. Uh, next week, we dive into Bible prophecy in a deeper level. We start to look at some of the variations that exist how different groups interpret things differently, and what we can learn from each. So thanks again for being here, everyone. Have a great week, friends. And until next time, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.